Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being a God that we can trust, for being a God that is faithful to his promises. And Lord, you've promised that if we ask for your spirit, you will give us your spirit. And so Lord, we are now asking for the same spirit that inspired the Bible to be present here and teaching us. Make my thoughts clear, make the presentation make sense, but above everything, Lord, may we find truth in your name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start off by doing a bit of a review from last week. Um, to refresh in our memories somewhat. Um, so we're doing a review from last week. Now we've been in Revelation chapter 14, which we're looking at the first angel's message specifically. So Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, we're going to read it. It's going to be up on the board. We'll be using our Bibles later on. But for now, it says, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. And what did this angel possess? The everlasting gospel. We noted last week that that's the only place in all scripture where everlasting gospel is used. We have the word gospel. This is the only place where it's referred to as the everlasting gospel. To preach unto who? Unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred, tongue and people. So there's an angel in heaven, has a mighty gospel to share and whatever's about to come out of his mouth next is the gospel. And so it says, saying with a loud voice, what? Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Bit of review. What does it mean to fear God? That's what we did last week, right? What does it mean to fear God? We looked at two portions of Scripture. What does it mean to fear God? Who remembers the first one? It was found in Proverbs chapter 9, I believe, verse 13. Fear God, according to Scripture, was what? To hate evil. And then, according to Proverbs 19, it's the what? The beginning of wisdom. There's other passages which I briefly just spoke of, but in Proverbs 1 verse 7, it refers to it as the beginning of knowledge. And then in Proverbs 14, 27, it says that it is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Now, we're going to dig into it a little bit deeper today. Um, Turn with me, well, yeah, let's do it. Turn with me to Genesis 20, 20. Genesis 20, 20. Now, From the Bible itself, if the Bible explains itself, it specifically says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, or it's the beginning of wisdom, or it's a fountain to depart from the snares of death. Um, But what do all these things really mean? And we're going to try piece it together so that we have a more complete picture. So we have Genesis 20.20. Genesis 20.20. We looked at this last week, but we're going to be... Sorry, Exodus 20.20, not Genesis 20.20. Pardon me. Exodus 20.20. Uh, we looked at it last week, and uh, we'll look at it again today. It's one of these confusing ones where it's like, don't fear so that you can fear. But we're going we're gonna to be noticing something different about it today, okay? Um, Exodus 20, 20. Are we there? Say amen if you're there. Exodus 20, 20. Yeah. Say amen if you're there. All right, brilliant. It says, and Moses said to the people, What? Do not fear, right? Now, we've established this last week. There is a fear that God doesn't want us to have. But then he speaks about the fear that he wants us to have. He says, do not fear, for God has come to test you. Why? That his fear, or the fear of the Lord, that his fear 
may be before you. Now, here's what I want us to notice. Why does he want the fear of the Lord to be before them? Or why does he want them to have the fear of the Lord? How does the verse finish? So that you do not what? So that you may not sin. What does it say? So that you may not sin. We have fear. He says, do not fear, for the Lord has come to test you. Why? So that his fear may be for you. Why does he want his fear to be before us? Why? So that we do not sin. Now notice that the fear of the Lord is connected here with not sinning. Does that make sense? The fear of the Lord is connected here with not sinning. Let's turn to another passage in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to be looking at a few passages. So as much as possible, quick fingers. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 29. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 29. It says, Oh, that they had such a spirit in them, like they would what? What's it say? Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would what? Fear me and what? Always keep all my commandments. Yours says, obey my commandments, yeah? Oh, that they would what? Fear me and do what? And keep my commandments. Another reference here where the fear of the Lord or fearing God is a result of results or is connected to keeping his commandments. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 2. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 2. That you may what? Fear the Lord your God. And why? To keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you. Once again here, the fear of the Lord or fearing God is connected to what? Keeping His commandments, yeah? Let's look at another one. Let's keep establishing this. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6. Once again, where keeping commandments is connected with the fear of the Lord or fearing God, right? Verse uh, 6, it says, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and to... Fear Him. Once again, keeping commandments is somehow connected to fearing God. Uh, Deuteronomy 13 verse 4. Deuteronomy 13 and verse 4. It says, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. Once again, Fear God is used often in the same sentence as keeping His commandments, or the Bible often connects these two. We'll look at the last one just to kind of establish this. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Chapter 12 and verse 13. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. It says... Let us here conclude the whole matter. Fear God and do what? Keep His commandments, for this is man's all. Do you see how Scripture, if we ask ourselves, what is the fear of the Lord? And in Proverbs, it plainly gives us the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, right? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is to, what does it say? It is a fountain of life uh, to lead you away from the snares of death or something like that, yeah? 
Now, all these things, they're good, but if you want to summarize what does it mean to fear God, what does it mean to begin being wise, what does it mean to have knowledge, what does it mean to be a part of the fountain of life that leads you away from the snares of death, it means to keep God's commandments. And we can also see this thoroughly because wherever fear God, fear God, fear God, fear God is, uh, shows up, especially in the Old Testament. And don't forget the book of Revelation, the vast majority is quoting the Old Testament and its concepts. Wherever the fear God is brought up, it's connected with keeping His commandments. Okay? You follow that? So, <laughs> it's kind of interesting, right? And I saw another angel, this is Revelation 14, 6. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel, right? Now, this is the everlasting gospel. We're talking about the gospel that's for everyone. And it's interesting that it begins with fear God, which is something that in its essence really means keep God's commandments. Now, if, if we're talking about the gospel, why is it we're talking about keeping the law? Like, why does it begin by keeping His commandments? Why does it begin by hating evil? Why does it begin with these things? Look at what Ellen White has to say. She says, in Christ's Object Lessons, page 128, it says, No man can rightly represent the law of God without the gospel. So it's impossible to properly communicate the law of God without communicating the gospel. And she says, or the gospel without the law. Now listen to this statement. It's powerful. It says, the law is the gospel embodied, and the gospel is the law unfolded. The law is the root, and the gospel is the fragrant blossom and the fruit which it bears. You know, we may think that it's odd when we're speaking about the everlasting gospel, that it begins by speaking about keeping the law, by, by hating evil, by keeping God's commandments. But could it just be that some of us may feel that that's odd because we don't really understand the gospel or because we don't really understand the law? Because according to the spirit of prophecy, it is impossible to properly or correctly teach one without the other. She goes as far as to say that the gospel of what she says, the law is the gospel embodied. And she says the gospel is the law unfolded. Like, by reading this, the law and the gospel, it's like they're inseparable. Do you get what I'm saying? Like trying to communicate Jesus dying on the cross for you without the law is impossible. And trying to communicate what we ought to do by keeping the law, right, is impossible to do without sharing the gospel. She says they are essentially one and the same. They're just, the law is the root and the gospel is the fruit. That's what she says. But it's of the same plant. Um, all right. So that's essentially what does it mean to fear God? To fear God, it means, A, to hate evil. To, it's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's a fountain of life to keep you away from the snares of death. Or in other words, if you want to summarize it or connect it the way the Bible does, to fear God, it means to keep His commandments. Now, here's the interesting part. We're speaking about the gospel, you know what I mean? And I know for myself, for years, if I want to share with someone the gospel, I do not begin by telling them to keep the commandments. Do you get what I mean? Like, I just, I just wouldn't. But the angel here, that's how they begin this everlasting gospel. They begin by the appeal to keep God's commandments. What does it mean to give God glory or give glory to Him? 
That's what we're going to be looking at today, okay? So the fear of the Lord, or to fear God, is to keep His commandments. What does it mean to give Him glory, all right? Let's get into it. What does it mean to give God glory? Turn with me to, uh, pardon me, to the book of Mark, chapter 10. The book of Mark, chapter 10. And I really believe that most Christians, just like most of Jesus' followers in Jesus' day, we misunderstand of what it means, what glory means. We have a misunderstanding of what glory means, just like James and John did, and that's what we're about to see. Okay? We're in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to start reading in verse 35. Amen? We're there? All right. It says, Then who? James, Ed, John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, let me just ask you a quick question. If your kid came to you, and said, all right, mom, dad, um, I need you to do whatever I'm about to ask. Are you going to say, yeah, kid, name it, whatever you want? No way. You're going to do what Jesus did and figure out what they want first before you give a yes or no, yeah? 100%. So Jesus does the same thing. He says, and he said to them, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Now listen to verse 37. This is important. This is crucial. They said to him, grant us that we may sit on your right hand and the other on your left. Where? Where? In your glory. So James and John, what they thought, now understand this, James and John, what they thought glory was, they thought that it was something spectacular and prestige and, and wow and, and, and awe-inspiring, yeah? Because what they thought, when <laughs> James and John... They thought when Jesus glorified the Father, when Jesus entered his glory, that meant when he conquers the Romans and becomes king. Yeah? And so when they said, hey, can one of us sit on your left and the other on your right, what they were, what they were saying is, they, hey, can one be number two in charge and the other number three in charge when you become king? Yeah? But they didn't say when you become king. And what did they say? When you enter your what? Glory. glory. See, they thought... That Jesus' glory, the way that Jesus glorifies the Father, yeah? They thought the way that Jesus will glorify the Father was by destroying the Romans and becoming king. Now look at what Jesus responds to them, verse 38. But Jesus said to them, what? What does he say? You don't know what you're asking, right? Now I've spoken about this not that long ago, Yeah? It says, you do not know what you are asking. So in other words, what they thought they were asking was not what they were actually asking. Does that make sense? I shared with you the illustration recently. You're right. I shared with you the illustration recently um, of that young girl who saw a fire for the first time. And she was like, hey, can I go into the fire? She goes to her dad, hey, can I go in the fire and become all beautiful and shiny? Now, what did she think she was asking her dad? Can I go and become pretty in the fire? Yeah? But in reality, what was she actually asking? Can I be burnt to death? Yeah? Do you get the illustration here? 
They asked something. They asked Jesus, said, hey, can we be on your left and right when you enter your glory? And Jesus says, you have no idea what you've just asked me. You don't. You do not have a clue what you're asking me. According to Jesus, what was his glorifying the Father? How would he enter his glory? How would he glorify the Father? Let's continue reading. Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. And then he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I, am be bapt- I will be baptized with? What is Jesus referencing here? What is this cup? He's suffering. Remember, not long after that, he's in the garden, and what's he pleading with the Father about? Lord, take this cup from me. What's, what's this cup that Jesus is referring to? It's the cup of the wrath of God, is it not? It's the cup of the what? Bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink. Listen, James and John, they thought glory is something beautiful and precious and, oh man, everyone's going to be jealous of us. Yeah? And they were, they were, because look at this. Jump down to verse 41. And when the ten heard it, the other ones, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. When they heard that they were asking to be the second and third when Jesus enters his glory, they already became jealous. They already became displeased. They already became bitter toward one another. Yeah? Because the disciples, just like a lot of Christians, they have a misconception of what it means to be glorified, what it means to glorify Jesus, what it means to glorify the Father. They thought that what he meant was conquering the Romans, Jesus becoming the most powerful man in the world, and he'd be able to have whatever they want. But according to Jesus, what did it mean to enter his glory? What did it mean? According to him, it meant drinking of the cup of wrath. It meant being baptized with the baptism of death. Yeah? To prove this, look, jump, jump, jump to Luke 24. Jump to Luke 24. Now, don't forget this. James and John, they're like, hey, please, maybe be on the left and right when you enter your glory. And they think, they think that they're saying, hey, when you become king, can we be on your left and right? When you enter your glory and become powerful and awesome, can we be on your left and right? And Jesus is like, man, you seriously think you can drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Luke 24 and 25 and 26. Jesus is walking along the road. They've been whining and complaining about him. And then it says this, verse 25 and 26. It says, Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have what? Suffered these things and to enter his what? Glory. Jesus, before the crucifixion, referred to entering his glory, drinking the cup of wrath. Yeah? After, he refers to the suffering of these things being where he entered his glory, being where he glorified the Father. Now, think about this. Why was the cross glorifying the Father? Why is Jesus going through the cross? How is it that that glorified the Father? Okay. Same thing, though. 
Well, he was dead first after he was crucified. Yeah. Now, here's the point, and I'll back that up later. But here's the question. Why is it that this death on the cross, this suffering that Jesus went through, why is it, how is it that that even brought glory to the Father? Is the Father some sadistic dude who just enjoys his son being tortured by his creation? Do you get the question? Let me ask you a question. Is it easy to be a Christian when things are good? It really is, yeah? Is it easy to get up in church and praise God? And, 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 and is it easy to tell people that you're a Christian when life is good? For sure. Is it easy to be kind and loving towards someone who's kind and loving? Is it easy to be kind and loving towards someone who's not kind and loving? Is it easy to be a Christian when things get tough? Is it easy to continue to have faith when it seems that everything you're having faith in is just turning against you and doesn't support you? See, (laughs) when Jesus... When Jesus was on the cross being crucified, everything was communicating to him that the Father had forsaken him. Everyone he loved turned against him. He was naked as the day that he was born. Ellen White says it looked like one wound from head to toe. He was forsaken. And everything in his being was communicating God's left me. Ellen White says that his suffering was so bad that he could not see through the portal of death. In other words, in Jesus' very own mind, at that point in time, there was no resurrection. He couldn't see the resurrection because of the pain, because of the suffering. So in Jesus' very own mind, where was that hope? Where was that Father who protected Him? Where was that Father that raised Lazarus from the dead? In Jesus' being, He felt forsaken to the point where one of His last words is, Father, why have you what? Forsaken me. I've been faithful to you. I've never sinned in my life. Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Now, that that suffering, that's not the thing that brought glory to the Father. What brought glory to the Father is that Jesus remained faithful no matter what the circumstances were. The Bible says... If you love someone who loves you, it says, what thank have you? For even the heathens do that. That word thank is the exact same word in Ephesians that we know as grace. Now, grace is the power of God for the salvation of mankind, yeah? The Bible says, man, if you love someone who loves you, that's not evidence that you have grace. Because even the godless love people that love them. The Bible says, if you give money to someone and knowing that you're going to get it back, that's not an evidence of grace for even the godless give loans to people who they know they're going to get back. But then it goes on to say, but if you love someone who hates you, that is an evidence that you have grace. See, what brings God glory is when we remain faithful to Him, no matter what the circumstances. That is what brought glory 
to the Father through Jesus Christ's own suffering. Go to Matthew chapter 27. Go to Matthew chapter 27. Now, don't forget, James and John, they came to Jesus, yeah, and they said, hey, can we please be on the left and the other on the right when you enter your glory? Yeah? Matthew 27, verse 38. Jesus to James and John said, you don't know what you're asking me. What were they actually asking? Read verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the left, the other one was where? On his right. Jesus, can you please promise us to do something? Can can you promise to do for us anything we ask? What what do you want? Can we please be stripped naked and beaten and dragged through the streets and then killed with you? Now, they didn't work it that way. They said, can we please be on the left and right when you enter your glory? And that's why Jesus had to say, guys, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Go back to Mark chapter 10 where we started. What were they actually asking? What were they actually asking? Jesus, can we please be crucified with you? Yeah? And when people spit at us and hate us, can we not retaliate and call fire from heaven upon them, but can we rather just love them? Jesus, can we please stay faithful to God even though everything around us will communicate that he's forsaken us? Please, Jesus. And so Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, in verse 38, he has to say, you don't know what you're asking. And then, let's continue reading this. It's so arrogant and ignorant of the disciples. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now look, listen to their response, verse 39. They said to him, we are able. You know, they're probably thinking like, this glorious kingly cup. You know, they probably think that Jesus is saying, hey, being a king is a lot of responsibility. You think you're up for it? Now look at how Jesus says, what Jesus says. They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it is prepared. See, Jesus said to him, look, seriously, you think you're ready? Yeah, we are. He's like, look, no, but you will be. You will be. Go to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. John chapter 21. And let's read verse 18 and 19. John chapter 21, verse 18 and 19. It says... Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. It's like, huh? (laughs) What is he saying here? 
Well, it's summarized in verse 19. It says, This he spoke, signifying by what? What death he would what? Glorify God. What does it mean to give God glory? It means to stay faithful to him no matter what circumstances come your way. It means you would rather die than turn your back on God. It means that you would stay with God even if it means death. Even if it means losing your friends. Even if it means giving up a job. Even if it means losing a relationship. It means you will stay faithful to God no matter what. That is what brought the Father glory. It wasn't the suffering of His Son. It was the faithfulness of His Son through the suffering. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? God doesn't rejoice in anyone's suffering, even Jesus's. It was not the suffering of the Son that brought the Father glory. It was the faithfulness of the Son through the suffering that brought Him glory. Does that make sense? Do you see the distinction? If someone's got cancer, that doesn't bring God glory. But if someone remains faithful to Jesus in spite of this horrible pain and in spite of the terrible circumstances, that's what brings God glory. Does losing a child bring God glory? Not at all. But if that mother, that father can remain faithful to Jesus through that, their faithfulness glorifies the father. Does that make sense? So what does it mean to give God glory? Can someone say? Stay faithful to God no matter what. Revelation 14 verse 7, the first angel's message. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. Let's, uh, let's put it into terms that we may understand now, right? The everlasting gospel begins like this. Saying with a loud voice, obey my commandments and stay faithful to him. Or obey his commandments, pardon me, and stay faithful to him. For the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. I believe thoroughly that scripture teaches that the message, now remember, the message of the gospel, not the practice of the gospel, okay? That the message of the gospel begins with God's appeal to a higher and faithful life. You know, people make a mistake by separating faithfulness to God with God's faithfulness to you. Do you get what I'm saying? They're saying, God's been faithful to me. I don't need to be faithful to him. Right? That's essentially what people are saying when the law's done away with. That's what they're essentially saying when we don't need to keep commandments. It's like, oh, God's been faithful to me. I don't need to be faithful to him. But the gospel begins with God's appeal for your faithfulness. The message, remember, not the practice. God's appeal is for your faithfulness. Now, he gives you a reason to be faithful, and that's what we're going to get into for the next few weeks, right? And that is this whole concept, the hour of judgment is come. That is the reason, right? 
That is the reason that God has started off with obey my commandments and stay faithful to me. Right? For the hour of his judgment has come. Sometimes we can be so fearful to communicate about God's desired faithfulness, right? That people can walk away not feeling that they have an obligation to be faithful to Him. Do you know what I mean? But the gospel begins by God appealing for your faithfulness, for my faithfulness. Why? For the hour of judgment has come. Now remember, this is the message of the gospel. We all know that in the practice of the gospel, God searched for you, God found you, God died for you, God pleads for you, He's doing everything for you, and then you respond to Him, and as a result of all that He's done, you'll be faithful. Does that make sense? That's the practice of the gospel. But the message of the gospel begins with God's appeal for you to be faithful to His commandments and for His appeal for you to be faithful to Him no matter what circumstances come. It's slightly different, isn't it? Because a lot of the time the gospel can be presented in God's died for you. You accept Him, and that's true. Accept that forgiveness, and you are forgiven. And that is true, 100%. But sometimes we minimize the effect that that gospel has on our life. Sometimes we play that down and so therefore people accept what Jesus has done but do not accept their responsibility as, uh, to respond to what he's done in our lives. Does that make sense? The message of the gospel begins by God appealing to you and me to keep His commandments and to stay faithful to Him no matter what. To fear God and give glory to Him. So next week, we will be looking at what is this whole, the hour of His judgment is come. And the reason we're going to be taking a few sessions on this is because because there's a lot of layers to look at it. It's going to seem some weeks like we're kind of repeating, but we're not. Um, With this, there is a literal application within this gospel message, okay? But there's also a prophetic application with what we would know as 1844, okay? And then on top of that, there is the salvation process, which is in that statement as well. Does that make sense? And so we'll be looking at the process of salvation, which is what this whole judgment thing is about, okay? Um, We'll be looking at the prophetic uh, implication, or not prophetic implication, but the prophetic understanding of this statement as far as 1844 and what does that all entail, and also the, um, the, 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 the judgment within this whole context of the gospel. So it may seem like we're repeating, but it'll be worth it, I think, because it's, it's, it's like, I want to say like, a, you know, those layered cakes, you know what I mean? Like, There's layers to it, and you need to first make the first layer and then put the second layer on and the third. But when you got all the layers, that's when it tastes the best. You know what I mean? The base does taste good, but not as good as when they're all together. You know what I mean? And so that's how this, the hour of judgment really is. All right. Um, So, what does it mean to fear God? I'll go back a slide. (laughs) What does it mean to fear God? 
to hate evil, or in other words, keep his, to keep his commandments. That can be, a, I think, a safe summary. What does it mean to fear God? It means to keep his commandments. And what does it mean to give him glory? Stay faithful to him no matter what the circumstances are. Next week, like I said, we're doing the hour of his judgment. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll bring it to a close. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your gospel. We thank you that the good news begins with an appeal for us to keep your commandments and that the good news has an appeal for us to stay faithful no matter what, which is also a promise within the appeal. Father God, we ask that individually we may be able to give you glory. We ask that as a church we may be able to give you glory. And Father, what that means is that we ask as individuals that we may stay faithful to you no matter what hardships come. And we ask that as a church we may stay faithful to you no matter what hardships come. Lord, in order to be able to do this, we need your spirit and we recognize that. And so we're pleading for your spirit, Lord. Give us your grace to empower us. Thank you so much for the sacrifice of your son. Thank you so much for your faithfulness. And Father, may we respond with faithfulness too. In Jesus' name, amen.